0: If you want to create radical enterprise value for a big co, you should be looking at startups and you should be looking at startups that are disrupted.
1: I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, I have a chance to sit down with one of, I think, the Midwest's greatest entrepreneurs, best investors, and really somebody that has changed this community for the better. Joining me is Scott Dorsey, who most famously is the co-founder and former CEO of ExactTarget, and now is one of the co-founders of High Alpha. So welcome, Scott. Hi, Dave. Thank you. Great to be uh, Great to be on the podcast, and thanks for the warm intro. Oh, well, thank you. I want to dive in, start right with Exact Target, the company that you spent nearly 14 years at yes. uh, as the f- co-founder and CEO. You know, Exact Target's arguably the most successful story of building a Midwest-based startup and tech startup in particular. You started in 2000, you took it public in 2012, and then you sold it to Salesforce in 2013 for the amazing sum of over $2.5 billion, uh, that kept... Growing as Salesforce kept going, which is good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so along the way, you pioneered this whole concept of the marketing cloud, and beyond your core offering of email marketing, you acquired CoTweet and IGo Digital and Pardot. That's a ton going into that. When did you realize Exact Target had a chance to go from the company that was your initial spark to this massive multi-billion-dollar company that was going to pioneer the marketing cloud?
0: Sure, we were we were so fortunate. You know, we we had the kind of entrepreneurial journey of a lifetime, you know, starting out as three first-time entrepreneurs, first-time software entrepreneurs, and, and ultimately building a meaningful company. You know, our founding principle was about helping marketers leverage data to send more targeted and personalized communications to their customers. And that really came from my co-founder Chris Baggett growing up in the world of database marketing at R Donnelly. And the expression of those communications were, were print and catalogs. But the concepts of database marketing were really solid, so that's where we started. And 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 you know we were fortunate to catch the wave of digital marketing and catch the wave of software as a service. I would say where we started to realize we were we were more than email was really around our data strategy. So we early on, as I mentioned, we were founded on this database principle, and we wanted to integrate. Everywhere and anywhere we could on behalf of our customers to bring data into our platform. So we were ironically early in integrating with Salesforce, even before the app exchange existed as one example. So we wanted to integrate with e-commerce systems and point of sale and CRM and really start to be the database of record for the marketer. And when that started really happening really happening. Then it became apparent that we were more than just a single-channel company, that we really had an opportunity to be omni-channel and start providing technology across all forms of digital communication. It was also interesting, Dave, from investors and then public investors, I felt like I was defending email at every turn. And and there's still narrative today about the future of email and will other channels cannibalize email. And it was a better position for us with customers and investors to say we're channel agnostic, we're experts in email, but we're gonna go wherever marketers can best reach and communicate with their customers. And and that was some of the early thinking and development into that broader strategy. I love that. And every entrepreneur and even a big company, you know, when they're
1: thinking about the future of where they're gonna go, you have to make that choice. Do we partner? Do we buy? Do we build it ourselves? And for parts of it, you made the decision to buy, like I said, with Co-Tweed and Pardot and others. What drove you to say, I'm going to go find that company, buy it, versus build it myself?
0: Sure, sure. That was a fun part of our growth strategy. We completed six acquisitions, three that were product expansion and the three that were geo-expansion. Mm-hmm. Scott McCorkle, who you know, who re- led you know, R&D and technology development for us always felt like we could build everything. We could build anything and everything. And we had a huge passion for R&D. And it was actually very important to us as we grew in scale as a company that we continued to invest 20% into research and development. So we kept that level of investment all the way through the history, all the way through the scaling of our company. Where we started to see opportunity for M&A were really areas in which we didn't have expertise and areas where we thought we could bring technology in that we just hadn't been able to prioritize perhaps, or we just didn't, we didn't have that expertise. So to your, to your point, the first one ever was co tweet So we acquired co-tweet and that put us in a first mover position of combining email and social together. Social was just coming of age. So it was an innovative move and, and did two things for us. One is it repositioned the company as more mm-hmm. than email. And that was really important. And then two, it gave us a presence in San Francisco that was important. Being in Indianapolis was home base and always home base, but it was important that we started to branch out around the U.S. and globally, and there's so much tech and development talent in San Francisco, it gave us a beachhead that we could build from. The other acquisitions were really really something special. Our geo-expansion acquisitions were resellers. So when we were thinly capitalized and scrappy, Our best path of international expansion was to work with resellers that agreed to sell our product and represent us in market. And it was a much lower cost and lower risk way of us entering markets like the UK, Australia, and even Brazil. And what happened in all cases is that these resellers were doing so well, they became a part of our family, they built a customer base with us, it became really logical then to acquire them once they started to scale. So three successive years, we acquired... A firm in London, then we acquired a firm in Melbourne, and then one in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And that really built built out our global presence. And then our last two acquisitions were done on the same day, October 2012. We announced it was really fun actually to see Spotify announce two acquisitions in the podcasting space yesterday, because it's really rare you see two acquisitions get announced at the same time. And even as we were looking for precedent around a press release or how to announce as a public company you've done two acquisitions on the same day we couldn't find it back in the day so we did we did two that all kind of came together in october of 2012 and that was i go digital that was a big move into predictive uh, analytics and then pardot and pardot was a really big move for us to acknowledge that the b2b marketing space was something different and something additive and, and that turned out to be a wonderful acquisition for us as well
1: Well, and one that's continued this day because both of those were founders you still work with.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Exactly. Which is pretty fun. So, you know, talking on kind of a different part of Exact Target, you guys had an amazing product, but you also had what's arguably the best culture I've ever seen. And that was intentional. You You know, you guys went and said orange as a culture is something you're going to build the company on. What led you to think about culture as a differentiator for a tech company?
0: Sure. So... When we started we wrote down our core values right from the very beginning and core value one was was basically the golden rule treat people well and we we had it in our mind that we were going to be competitive but we were going to be kind and and we really wanted to build a team and a culture that treated people well and and we would speak about treating people well not only your customer but one another and prospects, and partners, and even competitors. So yep. we had had this idea of treating people well. And those core values created something special, provided a framework. I always describe it as a framework for hiring and a framework for decision-making. And as we became larger as an organization, and I couldn't be involved in every decision, nor could the leadership team, the core values were kind of the guiding principles to help our team know when they could go quickly, and, and what we cared about and what we valued. So that was our first big wave of thinking about culture was really through the lens of the core values. Interesting enough, prior to me getting into the world of technology, my first job right out of college was with an amazing company called Steelcase. And I started my career thinking about how physical space impacts productivity, how physical space can drive collaboration, how physical space can shape culture. So that was something I wanted to bring into Exact Target as well. And then I'd say the final piece is really our friend Tim Kopp. When we hired Tim as chief marketing officer, he really brought the viewpoint that marketing is not only marketing out but it's actually marketing in and we talk often about marketing from the inside and if you can build evangelists who love the company love the people love the brand that that's the best marketing you can ever have so it really was chris it was really it really was tim's idea to brand the culture orange because we were hearing like over and over dave like like we love your team Everyone's so positive and energetic and smart and hardworking. Like we you can feel the vibe when you come into an exact target building or work with an exact target team. But it was we didn't have a framework for it. it. We knew it was something special, but we didn't have a great way to describe it. And it really was Tim's idea to take our brand color orange, turn it inside, and create a culture called Be Orange. And that became the cultural framework that drove the company. And going back to our, our last topic around M&A, Culture really helped us integrate companies and cultures into uh, into one, if you will. So every you know office and geography had their own subculture, but we're all stitched together by this feeling of orange. And it was, it was really, really special. And boy, our, our team in Australia would do a team building event and they'd all wear orange and they'd be so proud. Or maybe they'd run a marathon that had nothing to do with work and they'd be wearing orange and they'd send me photographs and same thing in Brazil. And we had a loose framework of how we spoke about culture, but beyond that, it was more of a feeling it was It was a sense you had that that you were orange and we were part of something really special together and The last comment I'll make here is one of my favorite stories is about a maybe year and a half or two years after the Salesforce acquisition when really the exact target brand really started to dissipate, and you know for many good reasons, Salesforce wanted. The team to to feel Salesforce and Salesforce Blue. One of our team members spun up a Facebook group called Orange Crush, and literally, Dave, over one weekend, over a thousand members joined, and over twenty five hundred pictures were posted. And I thought that's pretty awesome. If if that happens, even after the company no longer exists. And you've got that kind of alumni network, you know, you've done something pretty special on the culture side.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. Well, let's talk about that alumni network because you left uh, Salesforce 2014. You're not one to go send a golf course and hang out. So, <laughs> right a year later, you started High Alpha um, and started it with several of your fellow executives from uh, the days of Exact Target. Tell us a little bit more about what is High Alpha, what is High Alpha Studio, what is High
0: Alpha Capital, and what are you guys doing? I'd be happy to so. <laughs> Your 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 question. I want to tell you a quick little story, though. So, my wife Erin, we've been married for over twenty five years. She's phenomenal. She's um, every reason for you know every any little ounce of success I've had. When when we wrapped up at Exact Target and Salesforce. She said, "Don't forget, I take great pride in having a hardworking husband, <laughs> and uh, that, that, that like said it all. That said it all. <laughs> I take great pride in having a hardworking husband. So that's all I needed to hear. That was that was code for don't think you're going to play golf and in, in tennis, you know, five days a week. Well, that's um, a lot better. My
1: uh, my daughter, who's you know six years old now that I've left WPP and I'm doing my own, she could Daddy doesn't get to go to work anymore and hang out with his friends. <laughs> so explaining entrepreneurship to a, a young child is an interesting <laughs> right,
0: thing. Right. Uh, but I I love I love I love working hard. I like tackling difficult challenges and, and more than anything, I love supporting entrepreneurs and, and love coaching and mentoring. And I had an infinite number of people help me in so many ways along our journey that it's such a privilege to be able to help others. So so High Alpha really started with the four uh, founders, Mike Fitzgerald, Christian Anderson, and Eric Tobias. were friends. We knew we wanted to do something together. We had all worked together in one way or another. And and we complement each other beautifully. And we started saying that we just love founding, helping to found SaaS companies and cloud companies. And boy, if we could do that, rather than like nights and weekends as a hobby, if that became like our our full-time job, our full-time motion? Could we build a company that started companies? Could we build a platform that became really, really good at starting new cloud companies? That would be something that we'd love to do. And you know, through a little bit of serendipity, we ended up talking to investors and friends about what we were thinking about. And we ended up having a number of term sheets come in. And fortunately, a lot of wonderful investors wanted to support us. And one of the investors was Emergence Capital and another was Greenspring. And we're actually out here at the Greenspring conference. But what became evident was Greenspring was more aligned around helping us start a fund. And Emergence was more aligned around helping us start an operating company. Mm-hmm. So we thought, let's do both. Let's put the best of all worlds together. And the logic, which has really proven itself, is in markets like Indianapolis, it's very difficult to raise capital. It's very distracting for the entrepreneur to spend so much time raising capital and not enough time, frankly, building their team, building an amazing product, and building those early customer relationships. So having the startup studio and the venture fund in tandem created some real competitive advantage for us and in many ways creates a 18 or 24 month funding uh, road, you know, kind of path, if you will, for the entrepreneurs and helps them focus where they can make the biggest difference in starting their company.
1: Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So let's talk a little bit about some of those people. You know, one of the hearts of High Alpha has been the exact target alumni network and these amazing people that helped you guys build what it is and now are joining the entrepreneurial side. Making that switch, though, from a big company like Salesforce, jumping into the world of a High Alpha startup, that's tough. Um, Not everybody can do it. So when you're looking at talent and you've got that person raising their hand or you're looking to recruit somebody, how do you decide and... You, your gut tells you they're going to be able to make that switch. It's yeah, an, an amazing
0: question. And, you know, at High Up we have 35 team members. So that's a small environment. Even smaller is go join the startup, right? Yep. Be a co-founder. That's really, really small and very difficult. So it, it does take a, it, it takes kind of a different makeup. I heard a wonderful term yesterday I loved was an entrepreneur in corporate clothing. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we're looking for. We're looking for individuals who are entrepreneurial in how they how they think, how they act, how they can assert themselves and really make something happen from nothing. That's I think what's most difficult in transitioning from a large company environment to small. When you're in a large company, you're really playing triage all day. So many opportunities and communications are coming your way. You're trying to sort and sift through them and, and pick areas of prioritization. When you're in an early stage company, nothing's coming your way. Zero. You've got to make it all happen. And being able to search yourself, being able to see a little crack of an opportunity and know how to run through that door is a really different skill set. So it's a great gift, actually, Dave, that we're able to work with so many former colleagues because we we had shared success. We know what success looks like. In many ways we can kind of finish each other's sentences. We have a common vocabulary, so it really does help you go faster, yeah. but it's finding a special person that's ready to go from big to small and make a bigger impact, but maybe do it with less less security and, and, and structure than they have they've had before. So it's it's somebody that I think is very driven knows how to take initiative and probably has done things throughout their life that are entrepreneurial there's got to be some kind of an entrepreneurial track record that they can leverage and pull from
1: and you know with that move we get a lot of people that you know come for advice on well I want to do a startup or I want to be entrepreneurial sometimes those people don't necessarily have those skill sets that you just described but they're they're dead set that's what their heart wants to do how do you mentor and coach somebody that maybe doesn't have that complete skill set? Can they develop it, or do you have to give them the hard truth?
0: I think you have to give them the hard truth, and I think I think we have to be as candid as possible about how difficult startup life can be. Yeah. It's difficult. you got to be ready for it, and your family's got to be ready for it. And you've got to know you're heading into a situation where there's more risks than you probably have had in the past. Now, we would like to think at High Alpha that we... We de-risk a startup because of our experience and our access to capital and and all the good network that we built over time, but there's there's still risk. And it can be lonely, you know, really getting started. So we try to be as candid and upfront as possible. And then one area I've been spending a lot more time working on and thinking about, Dave, is the idea of co-founders. You know, in in many of our companies, we've started with one single co-founder, and then maybe over time, they'll start hiring their leadership team. And I think having two or three co-founders out of the gate can be really, really valuable because then you kind of have a support system built in. High health is a support system, but we're still different. You know, we're we're kind of co-founders early and then investors late. There's no substitute for like people in the trenches with you where when something really good or really bad happens, like the first phone call you make, it's got to be like your friend and co-founder. So... Some of those individuals that may not be as entrepreneurial as required to be the startup CEO still could play an important role, I think, on a founding team. Yep.
1: No, I love that. It makes a ton of sense. So let's talk that, uh, that emergence of corporations and startups. This week, you guys had a great event called Alloy that was out in San Francisco where the theme was around startup engagement. And the premise of that is that going forward, big companies need to place as much importance on engaging with startups, as they've historically done on research and development or more mergers and acquisitions. So what's your been your experience of the Fortune 500 and big companies overall understanding that and be willing to embrace it?
0: Yeah, and thank you for speaking at our conference, by the way. Dave, you did a great job. Oh, and thank it's you. So, such the sweet spot of what you've written about and what you speak about with uh, with predicting the turn. In in our experience, you know, we started with Several idea sources. One was just our own ideas that are a problem we, we desperately want to solve in, in the world of B2B software. Second would be entrepreneurs approaching us with an idea. Third, our, our venture partners maybe seeing a theme or a a new market or new technology trend where we could start a company. And then the fourth, which really surprised me, was large corporates coming to us wanting to start new companies, or wanting help in shifting their culture to be more agile and more entrepreneurial. Now, not all companies can do that, but, but i definitely finding that big companies, they're fearful of disruption, they know they have to keep reinventing themselves. Leaders, even a younger generation of leaders, think about digital in a brand new way, and are trying to infuse those principles into, the, into their business. So in some ways, we're almost reluctant consultants that we've kind of gotten pulled into this world, but we've been happy to do it because it's allowed us to learn a lot about different companies and industries and find new sources for, for ideas to start companies in, in, in brand new industries. We've seen a shift over time of companies focusing heavy on R&D, and some of those returns are starting to dissipate. And then second, going really to MA, that if you can't innovate, you know, just buy your way to innovation. And I think that still plays a role. But third is this idea of startup engagement and, and not being afraid to start new companies. And really not being afraid to start new companies outside the four walls of big co. Because as you know firsthand, it's so hard to innovate inside the four walls of big company. There's so much structure and an aversion to risk, rightfully so in many cases, that you can't do what you need to do as a startup of taking risk and moving fast and raising capital from outside sources and and breaking some of the rules. So we're starting to see a trend of big companies partnering with studios like High Alpha or or other avenues to start new companies. And, And boy, can they make a difference as maybe a first customer or an equity investor. And also, equally as powerful, big companies can learn a lot from startups. And when big companies become a customer of an early stage company they can shape product roadmap they can infuse that startup uh, ethos into their company and they can completely change the trajectory of that early startup It, it changes everything it could make the company more fundable it could make the company grow faster it could create jobs it could grow their local tech community so i i encourage a lot of big company cios to create an environment where you can test and experiment technology being built by early stage companies that can be that can be quite powerful the other the other element is if you want to create radical enterprise value for a big co you should be looking at startups and you should be looking at startups that are disruptive and you look at just as one example what's happened with lime and bird here over literally the last year or two Mm -hmm. those two companies are valued at well north of a billion dollars they're transportation companies why did the bicycle companies or the auto companies not start those firms or not get in the game? You know, they just didn't see the opportunity.
1: Yep, that's exactly it. Probing that one a little bit more, you know, some of our peers in the world of venture capital could not disagree more about big companies engaging with startups, more because they don't think they think the big company is going to send that startup on a bad path. You know, some of the most famous on the West Coast and East Coast have been pretty vocal <laughs> about it. What's your view on that? Are are they just flat out wrong? Have they been swayed by bad experiences and we're in a different time today?
0: It's an awesome question. I think not all big companies are created equal. So I think some big companies think that that they want to be friendly to startups, but they, they don't have the mindset. Or often, here's what happens is maybe an individual at a senior level kind of, you know, Thinks it's a good idea, but it gets down into the team that's got to implement it, and you just kind of can't break through the clutter, or the uh, the you know organizational inertia to get something done. But I I'm seeing I I think it's it's company specific. I'm seeing big companies that have the right frame of mind can be amazing partners to early stage companies. But I do agree, not you can't say that for all companies, yeah. and and there are plenty of big companies that can be too much of a time burden and, and far too difficult for the startup to work with. And and the startup entrepreneur has got to be so careful not to spend time in the wrong places or not be chasing a big enterprise in a disproportionate way because they'll, they'll likely just be disappointed and, and spend a lot of cycles that they could have better utilized in a different direction.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's the value of having somebody like High Alpha as a partner because you can give that advice, play that buffer, help that entrepreneur realize and maybe something's going a little off yes, track Yes, and there. we're learning
0: all the time, too. So we're, we're getting better and better patterned recognition and kind of learning from our own mistakes.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned there's, you know, the four areas that kind of inspire you, the things you create with studios and the spaces you invest. One of the things that comes out of those four areas is something called a sprint week.
0: Tell me more about that. Yeah, I'd be happy to, David. I think this was, has been kind of one of our most impactful developments in the, in the three or four years we've been doing this at High alpha at the highest level, we created Sprint Week. We run four Sprint Weeks a year to, this is going to sound silly, force us to start a new business. So we, we realized you can just come up with 100 reasons why not to start a new company. It's so easy to throw splash cold water on an idea. It's not a good idea. That's already been tried. There's too much competition. You'll never get funded. So we had to create a mechanism that created a cadence for new company creation, and that that really led to Sprint Week, and it's been magnificent. So we take our four to six best ideas, we run them once a quarter. So throughout the quarter, we are filtering, we're bringing lots of ideas into the top of the funnel, we're vetting them, we have business analysts that'll do work and research. Ideally, we start to create a pool of co-founders who might be well-matched for the idea that we think has merit. And then we roll into Sprint Week into four to six teams. Typically, each team is led by one of the High Alpha partners. And it's a mix of High Alpha team members. So all 35 team members participate in Sprint Week, regardless of your role within the business, we're all company creators. And then we bring lots of outside guests in. That could be maybe a subject matter expert, maybe a potential co-founder, maybe a potential investor. We mix those teams together and we literally try to compress three or four months worth of work into three days. Mm-hmm. So Monday tends to be a focus on are we the problem we're solving? Are we clear on the problem uh, that we're trying to solve or the opportunity? Day two tends to be designing the product and the solution. And then day three tends to be designing the business and the business model. And at the end of those three days, we present to one another on day four. So it's like an internal pitch competition or business plan competition. And the decks that have been built are remarkable. Like you, you can't imagine they've been built in three days. So we'll develop the brand, the digital presence. And and the constraint of time can be a wonderful thing, actually. So we might prefer to spend two months trying to come up with a company name, but we might only have an hour in Sprint Week. So come up with five ideas, do some domain searching, pick one and go, that'd be just one example. We do high high fidelity product design, we build a resource plan, we build a financial plan, we do competitive landscape analysis, and we do a whole lot of customer development. Ideally, we're gonna talk to 20, 30, 40 customers and get a real sense for what they might be interested in, and hopefully line up five to ten of them that want to be early alpha customers. So, so that whole methodology has served us really well. And ideally, we're going to come out of Sprint Week with one or more ideas that we're ready to hit the green light and go ahead and start those companies.
1: There you go. That's, that's awesome. And so final question, I want to spend some time, because we've got a happy hour here for GreenSpring <laughs> to go to. Excellent. You know, One of the concepts I've been playing around with is this idea of continuous beta. You know, It's the idea that companies, but really the people at those companies, the world is moving so fast that no one can be comfortable with where they've been. They have to be continuously moving forward and evolving their skill set, their mind, their thinking. You've done that with your career, going from steel case to being a founder of a tech company to becoming an investor and now really being a community change agent in a lot of ways.
0: How have you thought about that idea of continuous beta in your own life? Yeah, I love that term by the way, continuous beta. I think that's a that's a state of mind that that everyone should have. For me, you know, it's really, it's really interesting when when we started Exact Target, like I, I knew nothing about starting and scaling software companies. I was a sponge. I was on the learning side of every interaction I had. And even the venture firms that invested in us would hold quarterly conferences. And I, I attended everyone I could. I just there was like a benefit of knowing that that there's so much I didn't know. So I, I really went into exact targeting company building with a learning mindset and just became a sponge and never passed on a learning opportunity. Somewhere along the way, then you end up being the mentor. You end up being the panelist. You end up being the speaker. And I try to be really conscious about making sure that I'm still learning and you can mentor lots of people, but you still need to be mentored. And the real blessing for me over the last three or four years with High Alpha has been around learning the world of venture capital. So I knew the world of venture capital as an entrepreneur. I really didn't know the world of venture capital as an investor. So that's an example of an area where I seek out mentors. I have mentors. I'm asking for advice all the time. I'm attending conferences, I'm reading articles and listening to podcasts, and I still have a long way to go, so I'm learning as much as I can about the world of venture and and just try to keep keeping myself fresh and sharp and, and setting good examples for others that you just regardless of age and experience, you got to keep learning and stretching yourself. And your point Dave, things are moving so quickly. you have to be careful when you're, not, you're not operating out of an old playbook, and I worry about that. you know, exact target. You know, we sold in 2013. It's been more than five years. So I have to be careful to be implementing new playbooks and not just relying on one that worked in a different era. So um, so those are all really important things. I'm not sure I've got it mastered, but I'm conscious of it and and try to work on learning and, and stretching myself in every way possible.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. That's such a powerful self-actualization because I think a lot of successful entrepreneurs, they they forget that lesson that the world is moving so fast that what worked in 2000 and 2005 and 2013 might not work anymore so true so, so true no that's wonderful well thank you so much uh you know time is the most valuable commodity so you taking an hour to do this really means a lot it's my pleasure and thank you for being such a mentor and an inspiration to the midwest and everything else well
0: right back at you dave i appreciate everything you're doing in cincinnati and we the more we can work together and lift up communities like indy and, and cincy i think it, you know it's, we're all going to be better for it so uh, this was an absolute treat thank you
1: oh thank you Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.